Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. It is Katrina Blowers and Tom Tilley here with you. Uh, It is pretty hard to avoid all the harrowing images and videos coming out of the Middle East on social media and and also in the news. But did you know that doom scrolling and an overconsumption of news can actually lead to secondhand trauma? But the question is, what good is it going to do? It is good for me to know. I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be ignorant. I want to know. But how much do you want to know? That's why I say, know what ha- what is happening. Know the news. Just stop it there. Yeah, it can be really difficult. You don't choose exactly what comes into your feed and you don't know exactly how it could affect you. So we're going to learn about secondhand trauma in this briefing first. Here are today's big headlines. It is Thursday, the 23rd of November. And we're beginning with some massive news out of the Middle East. An agreement between Hamas and Israel has been made for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. And that's been confirmed by officials from both sides. This will be a four-day truce. It's been announced early this morning. It will reportedly begin at around 9pm tonight. That's 9pm Eastern Standard Time or the time that it is in Sydney. And that's according to an Israeli official um, who's told CNN reports Reporters that timing. The pause will allow for 50 hostages to be released by Hamas within 48 hours. Those 50 will be women and children, and that will be in return for 150 Palestinian women and children that will be released from Israeli prisons. To just put that in context, so the 50 will come from the 240 Israeli hostages that were taken by Hamas by gunpoint. Um, That's been 46 days since that happened, Tom. Yeah, and so under this deal, Israel will give them an extra day's truce on top of the four for every 10 more hostages that are released. Uh, The families don't know yet who is actually on the list to be released. So that will be a nervous wait for those families. Um, I mean, the whole situation has just been harrowing. I like that second part of the deal that this truce could continue, Katrina, and, and more and more people might be released. So let's hope this holds and, you know, this conflict isn't resolved in a way that involves less, as least human lives being lost as possible. Yeah, and the other upside to this ceasefire is it's going to allow for the delivery of more fuel and um, other supplies into Gaza. And Israel's also promised to pause drone spy flights during this time. Yeah, and the Australian government's been issuing temporary visas to hundreds of Palestinians with family connections here in Australia to help them flee the conflict. So far, they've approved 860 visas. Um, So the family members here sponsor the applicants Um, and the visas allow them to stay for up to 12 months. And Bruce Learman has taken to the witness stand for the first time, accusing Channel 10 of spreading poison and painting him as a revolting predator. So yesterday, Bruce Learman's long-awaited defamation trial against 10, the project, and Lisa Wilkinson kicked off in court. Um, He maintains his innocence and is now seeking a substantial payout. Uh, As the trial against 10 and Lisa Wilkinson started, we learned that Learman had settled with the ABC. He was suing them over the press club address by Brittany Higgins that they broadcast. Uh, The terms of that settlement haven't been revealed, but they didn't reach a settlement with Network 10 and that trial began. And so yesterday when the trial began, Learman took the stand as a witness. Now, he didn't give evidence 
in that aborted criminal trial in the ACT. But yesterday, he did take the stand and he told the court uh, that soon after the interview between Wilkinson and Brittany Higgins, uh, he was blocked and isolated on social media. He said that sent him into a deep spiral, contributing to quite significant mental health struggles. And he'll be in the stand again today, giving more evidence. And a huge turn of events at OpenAI. So the ex-CEO, Sam Altman, is now going to be reinstated. Uh, Okay, so we'll catch you up to speed if you haven't been following along. Altman, he's 38 years old and uh, he's, you know, seen to be like the the big hotshot in Silicon Valley right now. He was fired last Friday and that led to an open letter from nearly all of the company's 750 employees threatening to quit if he wasn't brought back. So now he is being brought back and this agreement includes a new look board which will be chaired by Brett Taylor the former co-chief executive of software firm Salesforce. And uh, Tom, I guess this means um, that this board shake-up means that OpenAI's chief scientist and its co-founder, Ilya Sutskova, and two others are leaving, which yeah. makes you think that perhaps they were the architects of Sam Altman's demise in the first place. What a What a soap opera this is. Yeah, very interesting. feels like we're watching an episode of The Social Network play out in real time. Um, <laughs> Sam Altman has a bit of a bit of a Zuckerberg kind of vibe, bit of a sort of crazy genius sort of energy. Interesting that that guy you mentioned, Ilya Sutskova, is one of the people leaving. So in that letter from the staff, they wanted Altman back and they wanted the board completely shaken up. And that seems to be what's happened. Um, Sutskova and two others leaving, as you mentioned. He sounds like an interesting player. He is reportedly was a key player in firing Altman. But then over the weekend, so he's fired Friday, over the weekend, changed his mind, said he regretted it and was one of the people to sign the staff letter calling for him to come back. And now he's gone. So it's a bit of a loss, I imagine, to lose your chief scientist and co-founder. So it'd be interesting to see what he does next and what the net loss is for the company in terms of losing him. But it seems at the core of a lot of this was this this bigger debate that I guess everyone's thinking about when it comes to AI is speed of development and growth versus, I guess, doing it in a safe and, and careful way, given the, the ramifications and the impact of this technology could be so big. Yeah, one of the interesting things was that um, the we, we still don't know the reasons why Sam Altman was fired in the first place, but, you know, transparency to the board was listed as one of them. And it's emerged that um, Sam Altman has a whole bunch of kind of side interests that he invests in, including um, trying to make a whole bunch of chips with a, an ex-senior guy from Apple. And, and um, apparently OpenAI was worried that their intellectual property would have been used. Um, Microsoft, who employed Sam Altman, was going to let him continue to do all of his side businesses as well as work for Microsoft. So, yeah, as you say, it's all these other things that are in the pipeline that could really catapult open AI's technology into spheres that it was never intended to be in in the first place. Yeah, I guess this this dispute within this company feels like a microcosm for the, the broader issues that are dividing people when it comes to AI. So, yeah, so interesting to watch. Uh, We're getting out of here. Antoinette is with you for today's briefing. 
Unfair, heinous and unjust violence has sadly always occurred throughout history. But what's different today is we have 24-hour news channels and unfiltered and unfettered social media access, which means we're often bombarded with bad news and confronting images all of the time. In the past few weeks, especially, there have been devastating images from the Middle East. Many of them include dead or dying children. Vicarious or secondary trauma used to mainly impact first responders and media professionals, but now many more people are feeling the effects. So what can you do to protect yourself from this or even identify it in the first place while still caring about national and social and global issues? Associate Professor Arash Javanbacht is the Director of the Stress, Trauma and Anxiety Research Clinic at Wayne State University in the US. He's also the author of the book Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. Associate Professor Arash, thank you for your time. What is secondary trauma? And can you explain how this differs from the very direct first-hand trauma which is experienced by victims of violence, abuse, dispossession and poverty? Trauma in the psychiatric language is basically experiences which are extremely tough and dangerous and threatening to someone's physical, emotional and sexual integrity. We are talking about war, explosions, shooting, assault, rape, robbery, domestic violence and abuse. And exposure can be direct, as you mentioned, meaning that I can be the subject of that violence. I can be in this horrible motor vehicle accident myself. I could be in a place where shootings happen and I might be shot at. So that's direct exposure to trauma. But then there is indirect or vicarious exposure to trauma, which is to those who are not the subject of the assault, for example, but they are exposed to it afterwards. For example, first responders. Firefighters and police officers, when you don't have it in your country, but in America, when there's a school shooting, these first responders go to clean up after what happened. So they're exposed to all the gore images and the things that are happening there. And they can basically develop all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the illness that is linked to trauma through this kind of exposure. But then there's another level of exposure to people like us through the news, through the hearing the stories and Mm. seeing the images and seeing the Uh, videos of these uh, uh, horrible experiences that other humans have that can have a traumatic impact. What are some of the symptoms of secondary trauma, particularly for people who aren't, you know, first responders, doctors, people working with refugees, journos? How as a regular person um, can you identify that you might be suffering from this? Yes, so we are not meant to have so much exposure to horrible disasters that happen across the globe, especially the way uh, the news media and reporting has evolved through our history, specifically recently. Now everybody with a cell phone is a reporter. We will get a lot more exposure to these images and the stories and the videos. And symptoms could range from high anxiety, feeling irritable, feeling angry, feeling frustrated, feeling stressed and worried, worried about our own safety, uh, to some symptoms of trauma or PTSD, such as not full-blown PTSD, but levels of those symptoms. For example, feeling on edge, being always on the watch, worrying about something happening. For example, someone who has heard about some disaster happening, let's say a horrible car accident, and they saw the images now, their family's out there driving, they may be too worrying about it. So anything that is basically a departure from the normal life in terms of feeling worse, feeling more anxious, feeling more scared, feeling on edge, 
And of course, with some people could be anger, right? Too much anger and frustration. And there's the opposite side also. Sometimes it's desensitization. Some people become desensitized. So the first uh, dead body they see, the second, uh, uh, 10 people now killed, 100 people now killed, and gradually becomes a norm for them, now becomes a statistic, which is also another sad aspect of it. We basically lose part of our empathetic humanity. How do you separate caring about injustice and violence to secondary trauma? I, like millions around the world, can't look away from the images on social media of the dead or injured children of Gaza. It's harrowing. It keeps me up at night. Part of me thinks, well, that's part of caring about humanity um, and wanting violence to end. How do you separate caring from secondary trauma? Absolutely. And I'm not in any way suggesting ignorance, right? We want to be informed. We need to know what's happening around the world. And as humans, we care for other humans. And we should feel the horrible things happening and impacting us. So if I hear all those images that you mentioned, if I see those images and I don't have any reaction to it, I'm a robot. So it is part of being human to know and to be affected. But then the question is, how much do you want to be affected and impacted? Mm. Do you want to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and watching and watching and rewatching, right? Because also when we get into that mood, when we get to that mood of fear and anxiety and stress, our attention is diverted also. Now, every time we go on the news, we're just keeping scrolling those news. Now, the question is, what is it going to do to me? Because some people, I understand, some people feel guilty to feel happy now, feel guilty to not follow the news, especially if you have a tie to that. I see it in a lot of Middle Eastern people, right? Because they have a tie, they understand, they have historical, uh, basically, exposure to what has been happening. But the question is, what good is it going to do? It is good for me to know. I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be ignorant. I want to know. But how much do I want to know? That's why I say, know what what is happening. Know the news. Just stop it there. So know enough to be informed. And then the next question is, what do I want to do about it? Do I want to sit here and stew over it and take away the happiness from myself and my family? Or no, I want to use this energy because fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, anger, they all have a lot of energy, emotional and mental energy that can be used. I can use it for activism. I can use it to, to for donation. I can use it for trying to help any child. So now you're doing something which is helping rather than doing something that is destructive to yourself. We're going to talk about treatment for those who are diagnosed with having post-traumatic stress disorder or some sort of trauma associated with an event. But before people get to that point, and hopefully in a bid to avoid that, what are some of the things that you suggest as mechanisms for self-care to ensure that your trauma doesn't compound and become even worse? The first aspect is to limit exposure. By limiting exposure, it means that if I open, I'm in America, if I open Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, 24-7 there's exposure to whatever horrible thing is happening in the world in America at that time. I don't need seven hours. Just one hour of getting the news is enough. So limit the exposure as much as you get and know what you're doing. It Don't succumb into basically disaster pornography and voyeurism and continuing to watch and watch and watch. Also, limit the intensity. As long as I know and I saw the image, I don't have to go see the video. That is not going to help the family or the child who is suffering there. I know enough. Also, 
that applies to ways of getting exposure to the news. There are some news outlets and people in the news world that deliver news with the with composure, and there are some who have a lot of drama and emotionality coming in it, basically forcing those emotions inside you. You don't want that. So you want to limit exposure both in the, the intensity and the extent. And then when the anxiety is too much, I would stop it. We have, the, we have basically the signs inside of us that say, okay, it is enough. We don't have to go more and go uh, continue on. Same applies to scrolling, right? Whether it's on the TV or scrolling. And the other thing is that our attention basically goes along with our emotions, meaning that if I'm in a scared mood or if I'm in an angry mood, my attention goes towards whatever wrong that is happening. Right now in the world and in your country, there are also a lot of good things happening. There are also a lot of good people. I'm not saying we want to avoid the atrocities, but we want to have a more realistic understanding of the world. Also know what's happening in the world of the sports and science and art and the good people doing good things that we start, uh, start ignoring when our attention is too much focused. Because again, we want to be informed. We don't want to be tortured. It's important, especially in situations like what's happening in the Middle East now, to avoid being manipulated. Because there are people who are in the world of media and in the world of social media are doing their best to manipulate us. A Jewish person and a Muslim person in America and Australia and in England and France don't have to fight each other. As we know, what's happening in the Middle East is not a Jewish-Muslim war. It's a war over land and greed and oppression. If any of our listeners fear that they do indeed have fully-fledged secondary trauma, what are some of the treatment options or avenues you suggest? The first uh, aspect is prevention or prevention of worsening, right? So limit. Use these uh, controls because there's always an urge that I want to go. I feel that I'm not doing enough if I'm not scrolling too much. Don't get into fights with us over social media. Nobody's going to change their mind over fighting with each other. But then uh, keep to the normal life routines. Whatever family has been doing, activities, funs, games, and movies you're watching, keep those. Don't avoid those. Exercise, I highly, highly, highly recommend, especially cardio exercise. That's an excellent way of venting the negatives. Sometimes we, t- we can talk to people, to friends, to those like-minded, those who can understand my pain and suffering, because sometimes someone else could be less sensitive to what, what I'm feeling, but there are other people who can understand. And if it's none of these work and we still feel like too much anxious, nervous, under pressure, cannot sleep, have poor appetite, feeling depressed, low motivation and energy, then reaching out to a mental health provider will be helpful. A lot of people are feeling survivor's guilt, either because they're parts of the press that are still alive or because they have an ethnic or geographic connection to that region. My answer to survivor's guilt, and I've said it to many people, and yeah, I understand specifically the cultural and ethnic and historical connection. That hurts a lot more. I see it a lot in my Palestinian and Lebanese friends. But survivor's guilt, logic, one happy person is better than two unhappy persons, number one. Number two, if someone is not around anymore to enjoy it, now you and I are responsible for enjoying life for two people. Yeah. And I mean it. You suffering is not going to reduce someone else's suffering. And the happier and more energized and more full your life is and you are, the more effective you will be in doing whatever you might be able to do to them. So at the end of the day, pragmatism. Is it going to help anybody? 
Arash Javanbacht, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Wayne State University in the US. He is a trauma expert who's worked with refugees, first responders and survivors of torture and human trafficking, and also the author of the book Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. Some really important pointers there on limiting exposure, looking for good in the world and also self-care and crucially not to feel too guilty about happiness and having safety and good things in your life, but also using those feelings of despair for good, whether you're donating or writing to politicians or getting educated or doing some other form of good. If all of that is not working and you need more support, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or see a GP for a mental health care plan referral. Listener.